Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Sunday is also a very big day. The 38th annual Terry Fox Run for Cancer Research is taking place uh, not just here in Hamilton, Southern Ontario, but right across the country, of course. This has been uh, become a, a tradition now in this country, and it's obviously to raise money for cancer research, but at the same time, honor the memory of uh, one of the greatest Canadians of all time. Joining us to talk about this is Fred Fox, uh, who is the manager of uh, support relations with the Terry Fox Foundation, and of course, Terry's older brother. Fred, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you on the program today. Well, thank you. Uh, great to be with you. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, the run and the tradition that's gone on here. Uh, I, I'm I still remember that day. I mean, I was uh, in North Toronto working at a radio station there when Terry made his run through the GTA. Uh, and it was uh, an inspiring, I mean, the, the, you run out of superlatives and adjectives talking about exactly what Terry did uh, and what he was attempting to do back in 1980, don't you? Yeah, it was uh, uh, an amazing time. It certainly was. Uh, I always have had the great opportunity to be with Terry when he arrived in, in Toronto. I wasn't with him that much during the Marathon of Hope. It was uh, our brother, younger brother, Daryl, and mm-hmm. Mom and Dad and my sister flew to Toronto and to see Terry arrive uh, there on July 11th, and I ran with him down University Avenue to Nathan Phillips Square, and um, it, was, it was an amazing thing. And you know where Terry started in Newfoundland, not very many people knew what he was doing, and uh, but he was so determined to get home. And uh, what was the driving force was um, wanting to make a difference in cancer research in this country, and uh, and the motivation was you know, the the memories of seeing young and older people going through uh, the, that disease. Fred, I'm sure there are people listening right now, well, because this is the 38th annual, Fred, that people that maybe don't know the Terry Fox story, uh, like you and I would, obviously, you lived it, but uh, uh, it, it did catch our imagination and, and our respect, and uh, and uh, just we were overwhelmed by this. But uh, Terry was, uh, as as a youngster, uh, from what I understand, I've been able to ascertain over the number of years, a guy that just uh, had this fabulous determination and attitude. He was, I, I think, uh, I think your parents described him one time as a guy who was never necessarily the best at anything, but boy, nobody worked harder. No, and, and it's true, and that's my message when uh, I get an opportunity to speak at schools. And I'm in Alberta right now. I was in Ontario, southern Ontario, last week, and and heading back next week to speak to schools. And that's my message. Um, you know. We might think of Terry as being a you know, Canadian hero. Somebody must have been a fantastic athlete to run a marathon every day for 143 days. But simply, Terry, as a as a kid, as a teenager, even into in university, was just an average athlete, not the best, not the fastest, not the strongest, and or the best student in class. He had to work harder than anybody, and that's usually my message to uh, to kids who. You know, kids that weren't born 38 years ago know so much about Terry. They're they're inspired by Terry. They want to model themselves after Terry because of those characteristics that we uh, know of him so well. Well, he met one of the greatest challenges, of course, when he was diagnosed. He was, what, 18, Fred, when that diagnosis was, was given? Yeah, 18, 1977, uh, first year of university at Simon Fraser in the Vancouver area. So um, something that was very new to our family is, is you know, as far as we knew. Uh, lost his leg, obviously, but he's, it's a special kind of individual to go through, first of all, what Terry had to go through physically and emotionally, of course, with the diagnosis and then the amputation, but to, to, to look around and see what was going on as he was going through his recovery and rehab and say, I want to do something about that. That, uh, that marks somebody who's just 
this much better than so much. I'm mean, so it's so easy to get self absorbed. I would think sometimes into this, but Terry wasn't that sort of a person. No, no, and he wasn't. He, uh, you know, Terry was a, a typical teenager. I mean, I don't think teenagers have changed really that much over the years. And Terry would even say during the Marathon of Hope that when he was a teenager before his cancer diagnosis, he just maybe just thought about himself and what he what he wanted and the material things and all that. He he would say later that. You know, getting cancer made him a more caring person. Uh, um, he had to take chemotherapy to get rid of any cancer that might be left in his body after his uh, after his amputation. And it soon became apparent that it didn't matter how sick Terry was from chemo. What affected him most was seeing other people um, being sick, young people and older people. And uh, it changed his life. Um, and he wanted to do something about it. And and that's. You know where we are today, 38 years later. Um, uh, Terry wanted an impact where research is in this country, and uh, we can certainly say he has. The physical aspect of this is still astounding, and and you know when you look at this, and you know we have marathons. We have the Around the Bay Race here in Hamilton, of course, and other great marathons right across the country. And you know these, Fred, as as you've traveled the country over the years, talking about the marathon. But this is a guy. Forget about you know the physical things for a second. This is a guy that did forty two miles. He did a marathon every day, and I know I know people that run marathons, and they they will tell me. It takes about a week to recover, to, for your body to recover, because of the, the physical stress that you go under. Terry got up the next day and did it all over again. It's funny you mentioned the, the week of recovery, because uh, that's kind of what I've been saying the last little while, last year. I ran a marathon in Eugene, Oregon and, uh, a year ago, and that's what I say. It took me a, a week to recover, and Terry was doing it every day. For 143 days, he ran a, a marathon, 42 kilometers, some days 50 kilometers a day, and uh, on, on an artificial leg and, and on a, on a leg that was designed for walking. And, and as we found out later, uh, while, well, you know, who knows when, but, uh, as he got, was making his way through Northern Ontario, he not only was running a marathon every day with an artificial leg, but with, uh, two, um, two tumors in, a, in his lungs, just one the size of a golf ball, one the size of a lemon in his chest. So what, kind of determination and and sacrifice was Terry making to to get into those miles every day. Well, and of course, that's what ultimately forced him to stop the uh, the marathon. He he didn't make it across the country, of course, as we know. And I I, I will never forget Fred that that video footage. Uh, I think it was Lloyd Robertson from CTV at the time was talking with Terry just as he had to make the announcement that he could not continue. And and Terry obviously was very emotional about that. And I think all Canadians were because we'd we'd come to to love Terry and to respect him and had so much admiration for what he was doing. And it was a uh, it was heart-wrenching to see that that diagnosis once again and have to pull him off the road that ultimately did take his life. Yeah, um, you know, early on in uh, Terry's Marathon of Hope, he was, I think he was only about two weeks into the run in Newfoundland. He was still in Newfoundland. Terry would journal at the end of the day, every day during his run. And uh, this one, he, one day he wasn't having a very good day, and he would write in his journal later on that evening, he would write, if I quit now, I'll be letting so many people down. And I think that's uh, that emotion that we saw of Terry on the day that he was uh, forced to, you know, be pulled off the road and not run on September 1st. I, you know, that was what he was probably thinking. He he was not happy that he couldn't complete what his goal was, uh, finish what he started, but he truly felt uh, personally that he was letting uh, cancer patients down in this country. And uh, we all know that it, that's not the case, but that's how he was feeling. 
When uh, when Terry passed away, he died in June 1981. Uh, the family decided to carry on uh, this tradition, obviously, and thus was born, of course, the Terry Fox run, uh, the annual Terry Fox run. Did you ever, in your wildest imagination, Fred, think that this would carry on and grow to the extent that it has over the last 38 years? No, not at all. And uh, you know, Terry Terry was aware before he passed away that there would be an annual event held in his name to continue raising money uh, in his honor and and to his goal. And and you know, our family for sure has been involved. That that was our mom. Uh, Terry passed away. She was kind of thrust out into the public eye to share Terry's story. But you know, it wasn't us, the family. It was Canadians that wanted to do this. That you know, Canadians had uh, had gravitated to Terry's story and to his his mission and all that. And and it was Canadians that wanted to do events every year uh, in communities, small communities, villages, cities. Uh, at schools across across Canada to continue his dream, and uh, so we've been there with them, uh, Canadians across this country, to to continue Terry's dream. Well, I, I can tell our listeners before, the, the Ontario branch, of course, uh, of the run, the Terry Fox organization, uh, raised thirteen million dollars last year. That was just in Ontario alone. Uh, the amount of money raised over the last uh, thirty-eight years has simply been phenomenal, hasn't it, Fred? Yeah, Terry. When he left Newfoundland, he thought he could raise uh, maybe a million dollars. He thought that would be a pretty attainable goal. He got to Port of Basque. They raised ten thousand dollars in a town of ten thousand people. He thought his new goal was a dollar for every Canadian, and that Terry saw twenty-four million dollars at that time. Twenty-four million people. Terry saw that before realized that before he passed. And today, over seven hundred and fifty million dollars have been raised uh, since Terry's Marathon of Hope uh, and all the Terry Fox runs since. So. Um, it's a big number, but it uh, more importantly, it's impacted and and really uh, made a difference in cancer research and uh, the survival rates of uh, people with cancer. Well, it has, and 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 that money, of course, is money well spent on research and, of course, treating people with this this hideous disease. But it is still with us, which is why this this run continues every year, obviously, and will, I'm sure, Fred, right up until the day that we finally beat cancer. Yeah, you bet, and and that's what. Terry wanted is uh, uh, ultimately a cure to be found. Uh, the cure, you know, the diagnosis rate in so many different cancers, Terry's included, is so much better than it ever was. And uh, we'll continue um, hosting Terry Fox runs until um, you know we you know find Terry's dream. By this, as an interesting uh, twist to this whole thing, too, and I, I recall when, when Terry was doing the Marathon of Hope, and I know you've continued this, uh, in, in as much as certainly you'd like to have corporate support for this and people can make donations and you'd like to see corporations donate, and they have uh, very generously over the years, but there was no sponsorship for this one, and to this day there is no sponsorship, no corporate sponsorship. That was uh, that was Terry's idea, wasn't it? You bet. Um yeah, that's what, that. Right from the very beginning, Terry felt that if a company or a corporation wanted to do that, they'd be uh, uh, to be involved. They would do it out of the, their, you know, the goodness of their heart. They, you know, they, you know, they would just do it and be involved as a good community supporter. And we've kept that going ever since. And, and uh, you know, it's not been always easy. And uh, but you know, in, even our volunteers across the country that are organizing. Terry Fox runs that will be happening on Sunday. They don't get a budget. They don't. Uh, it's all volunteer time. They have to get uh, materials, water, whatever it might be, donated. And and that was what Terry wanted. He never wore any other than the running shoes that he wore. It was obvious what he was wearing, and and that uh, 
Torrey wouldn't wear any corporate logo while he's running. So yeah, it wasn't about commercialization of this whole thing. It was about raising funds for a very worthwhile cause, and 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 it's so good to see that that spirit is being maintained year in and year out in every one of the Terry Fox runs right across the country. Uh, and by the way, just as, as when Terry was doing the Marathon of Hope, we want to remind our listeners, uh, we'd love for you, for you to, to be a, partic- a participant in the run, obviously, but if you don't, you can still donate, just like we did, of course, during the uh, the Marathon of Hope uh, back in 1980. So that's that's going to be available to them as well. Uh, and there's no pre-registration. People just need to show up at the location of the race near them, right, Fred, and uh, just start that day. You bet. Uh, it's always been that way. Kerry felt that uh, it didn't matter, you know, what your ability was, and you know, it, everybody's equal. So no registration fee. Uh, make a donation, what you can. Uh, sponsor somebody if you're not able to get out there um, in on Sunday morning. Um, you know, you can go to our website, uh, terryfox.org, and and create a. a, a sponsor page or, and, and sponsor somebody that you know, but uh, yeah, easy to make a donation and, and then you arrive at the run site, uh, you know, you can give whatever you're able to. By the way, because uh, obviously we have listeners all over the place now, uh, not just here in the Hamilton area, uh, if you go to that webpage that uh, Fred was just talking about, terryfox.org, it's uh, uh, also got a, a section there where you can actually find the race near you. Uh, just type, punch yeah. in uh, your, your city and, and obviously your province, and uh, they'll tell you exactly where you should show up on Sunday. Uh, it's, it's a remarkable tradition, and uh, it's uh, become a, a Canadian tradition uh, to uh, obviously raise funds for a very worthwhile cause, but uh, each and every year I know that uh, Terry is in our minds and in our hearts, Fred, uh, as for those of us that are going to be participating in the race or contributing uh, for this great cause as well. Uh, congratulations to uh, uh, thousands of volunteers right across the country that do this every year uh, because they know how important this is. And uh, and to you and the Fox family, Fred, uh, for, for carrying on with this and, and allowing us to, to share in a memory of just a great human being and a great Canadian. Well, yeah, thank you. Thank you for your support. And uh, it is truly um, volunteers and participants and donors across this country that have kept this uh, Terry's memory and dream alive. And uh, we can't be, we're, you know, thank people enough for their um, long-time dedication to Terry's legacy. Fred Fox, uh, Terry's older brother, and, of course, uh, the manager of support relations for the foundation. Thanks, as always, Fred. Appreciate it. Have a great weekend. You too. Great. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, with uh, all the drama going on at Queen's Park and well, Toronto City Hall, I guess for that matter, uh, the notwithstanding clause, of the, these are all little elements, of course, of the latest melodrama that's happening here in Canadian politics. Uh, it appears that Doug Ford has given uh, the Trudeau government the villain that they needed. Uh, Tim Harper, freelance writer and editor, uh, National Affairs columnist at the Toronto Sun, uh, Star rather, writes about this. Doug Ford has given uh, Trudeau... Uh, Doug Ford has given the Liberals, of course, the villain that he needs. A great piece in the Sun today. Anyway, I wanted to get Tim to come on and talk about this and uh, and and explore the political dynamic here. Well, welcome back, Tim. Great to have you on the program again today. Hey, Bill. How are you doing? Good to hear. You. Uh, so, yeah, I'm just caught up in this this uh, this drama that's the this soap opera that's unfolding right now. A uh, very timely piece right now. But you, as you pointed out in the piece, there's a very interesting dynamic going on between these two guys, isn't there? Um, well, sure there is. Um, <clears throat> we've talked about it before. The um, uh, the whole thing about the the question of the charter and uh, and um, the rule of law and so on is something that you would expect the liberals um, to be very hard on, and they will be. 
Uh, and you would expect Trudeau uh, to ramp this up, and uh, he will. Uh, he doesn't need to fight with a, another, uh, with a province right now, but I think he can be pretty well certain he's going to wrap this up as it comes into the uh, 2019 uh, uh, election campaign. And that there will be a lot of talk about, you know, the, the we like to call it virtue signaling where the, uh, the liberals are concerned. But, you know, this is something that Trudeau and the liberals are very good at, um, talking up uh, things like the charter and the rule of law. And, um, you know, trying to contrast this with uh, kind of the, the, the truculent populism that you're seeing from the, uh, from the, um, the, the Doug Ford uh, government here in Canada, so in, in Ontario. So I, think, I think we're headed for that in, in the 2019 federal uh, election. There's got to be talk uh, behind closed doors. Uh, well, they just had their caucus, I guess, uh, this past week out in uh, Saskatchewan. Uh, but for the Liberals anyway, Tim, that, that look at, uh, you, you know, the, the Prime Minister is scoring some points here with Canadians by standing up to the bully in the White House these days. And, and they've got to be saying, look at, you know, we've got a Canadian-made version of that, too. Uh, and, and, boy, that would play well heading into a federal election next year. Yeah, because I'm not sure the, um, I'm not sure the Liberals want to go into the next campaign uh, bill with a... Uh, um, with a battle uh, with Donald Trump on their hands, I think they'd much rather have a an NAFTA deal. Now the fallback, obviously, is if um, NAFTA blows up, um, um, Trudeau does campaign uh, with Christian Freeland about how they they stood up the bo- the bully uh, in the White House and did not capitulate. But I think it's a very open question as to whether. Um, that works compared to well, you know what kind of uh, uh, economic situation we're in. If the wrecking ball is being put to the Canadian economy because of auto tariffs or something like that, it's a lot easier and I would think a lot more convenient for them if uh, they, uh, they they find this boogeyman or the, the villain right here in uh, at Queens Park, um, get NAFTA behind them if they can, and uh, and, and use Doug Ford as the uh, the foil here. Well, I mean, this started, I guess, really, Tim, during the the, the uh, provincial election campaign here. I mean, when Ford started to to go after the the Trudeau government about the carbon tax and, and made a big right. deal about that, that was obviously one of the key elements of the the, the meager <laughs> platform that he actually did present. Uh, but he was consistent about that. Uh, so that that that's that's right now that kind of set the tone for it. But uh, part two of that, obviously, is is now his well, what some people are considering to be an attack on the the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Well, you know, I don't think the, uh, the Trudeau, uh, Justin Trudeau and, and his inner circle is under no illusions here. I don't think there's any question that they're ever going to cozy up to the uh, the Ford government because uh, Doug Ford doesn't, uh, Doug Ford wants to use the uh, the uh, Justin Trudeau government as as his foil too because, uh, you know, there, there was a, a delicious little um, exchange in the Toronto Star this week where um, uh, an insider with the Ford government talked to uh, my colleague Rob Benzie at the uh, Toronto Star and said, well, look, here we're being very muscular. Uh, this is the way the Ford government's going to handle things. When uh, Justin Trudeau uh, had a chance to uh, um, uh, use the uh, notwithstanding clause on the Trans Mountain Pipeline question, he chose not to, but look what our guy did. But that, that's a complete misunderstanding. Uh, Trudeau didn't have the opportunity to use the notwithstanding clause, and I'm sure he would not have had he had the opportunity uh, on the pipeline. Uh, but this is like the, the entire question here at Queens Park is being muddied by people in, inside the uh, the Ford um, government that don't actually uh, even understand 
uh, how the uh, Constitution is being used and being abused um, by their by their premiers. So uh, there's no question in my mind that this is going to come down to a um, you know a clash here in Ontario in 2019. And I do think that Trudeau is going to take the upper hand when it uh, comes to uh, talking about the the charter and the rule of law and um, and you know take it to the uh, to the fourth crowd here in Ontario. But, I mean, what Ford did this week, really, Tim, when you look at this, I mean, let's face it, I know that people get tired sometimes of drawing the analogies between Ford and, and the Trump administration, but he's pulled a page right out of their playbook here. I mean, this is the same thing Trump did when he imposed tariffs and said it was for national security. Uh, and, and, and and they they really copied that by saying, look, at, we're, you know, we're going to invoke the, uh, the notwithstanding clause, and it's a matter of democracy. I mean, really, is the, the, the base are going to buy that, but nobody else really, uh, I, I think, is gravitating to that. Well, you know, Bill, I'm always careful to try to draw the analogy between uh, Trump and Ford. It, it's a little too easy at times, but what the, the, what the two do have in common in the way they, they govern is this kind of um, truculent um, uh, populism where it's like, you know, it's my way or the highway, and I got elected, and uh, that's all that matters. Um, you know, I have a, a, a mandate, and nobody's going to get in the way of it, which uh, actually works a little bit better in the U.S. system uh, than it does here, and it shouldn't work here, and it doesn't work here. And uh, I think this is what... Uh, what Ford, uh, the Ford government is going to find out is that it isn't my way or the highway here. There are, there are uh, checks and balances here. And, um, uh, you know, I, I think actually the Ford government here at Wings Park wants this kind of confrontation, uh, relishes this kind of confrontation. Uh, but you can't, <laughs> you certainly can't go through four years of government doing this because, you know, it's going to be nothing but uh, uh, total chaos at this end. And, uh, at some point, like next year, we're going to have a federal election, and um, you know somebody's going to come in and, and take advantage of the chaos. And right now, I think it would be the federal liberals. Isn't that really just uh, politics one hundred and one, though, Tim? Sure. I mean, if you really want to solidify your political base, uh, whatever political party you're on, uh, it's a good idea to find a foil, somebody that you can direct your anger to right. and, and your angst. Yeah. And cool. uh, and and clearly, both these guys are, are looking at each other and say, "Ah, that's the guy right there." Yeah, I, I guess, though, no, I, I would say this about uh, Trudeau going into 2019, though. I think he's going to have too many foils, if you know what I mean. He's yeah, gonna, yeah. It, yeah, if you look down the uh, uh, the road, like on his, on his carbon pricing question right now, um, you know, he's, he's, he's going to be battling Saskatchewan. Um, Manitoba's not fully on board. Uh, he's going to have Doug Ford battling him uh, here in Ontario on carbon pricing. The maritime provinces have problems with it. You're going to get Jason Kenney probably uh, in Alberta. Regardless, Rachel Notley's already out of the game. And uh, that's a lot of fires to put out. Um, so, uh, you know, if you're Justin Trudeau, you're, you're the, the guy who came in, don't forget, uh, you were elected in 2015 promising a new deal, a new relationship with the provinces. Um, Stephen Harper, as we recall, would not... Um, ever call a first minister's or uh, first minister's conference. Uh, there was much made here in Ontario about how long it took him to meet Kathleen Wynne. Along comes Justin Trudeau. He's going to do things differently. I'm going to get along with the provinces. Um, you know, the first year or so, so far so good. Heading into uh, year four of the election, um, he's got nothing but battles on his hands where the provinces are concerned. Well, we don't even know what's going to happen in Quebec with that election either, do yeah, we? Yeah, yeah, that's right. There's another question. And, 
you know, uh, and, and in Quebec, uh, the whole question of uh, supply management with the dairy industry is going to uh, is, is going to flare up, and in fact, having an impact on the NAFTA talks. So, good point. There's another one. But in, in Ontario, the you know voter rich Ontario, and I go in every federal election, they always look to Ontario and say, oh, you know how you know it stops here. Oftentimes, we know in past uh, federal elections have been decided before they even start counting the votes in Manitoba. Yeah. Uh, and but with this polarization that seems to have gone on here with this provincial election, do the Liberals try to target the sixty percent that didn't vote for Doug Ford and say, look at that's 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 that that's that mother load right now that we can actually do to try to gain some points in Ontario? Well, let's not forget the uh, the federal liberals um, uh, own Ontario right now. Um, I think this is making it easier for them to continue to own Ontario. I think the liberals federally have uh, challenges in Quebec, as you mentioned, and uh, probably in the West. One of the reasons they held their uh, their caucus meeting in Saskatchewan. But um, you know, I think we're setting ourselves up for um, um, a real battle here in Ontario uh, on. Uh, Questions uh, on the rule of law versus uh, the Ford style of populism, and uh, I, I, you know it's the entire way that we in Canada uh, deal with politics uh, or, or want our politics to be uh, delivered. And I think it's it's actually setting up quite a, a fascinating. Uh, battle and a ballot question here in Ontario 2019. Well, especially when uh, you go back to the comments that Mr. Ford made on Monday when he talked about invoking the notwithstanding clause and suggesting, I guess he kind of got caught up in uh, in the rhetoric there and saying, look, it's, I may do this more often. You know, Every time I, I don't like a decision, I may invoke this. Uh, at some point, as you mentioned in the piece today, Tim, uh, you know, the Prime Minister's trying to stay away from this. He, he defended the Charter when he was talking about this a couple of days ago, but he didn't really go after Ford. Uh, there are others that will do that, including Bill Davis and Brian Mulroney and Bob Ray and others uh, that have done this. But it is, is if this continues, is that going to force the Prime Minister to jump into this fray? Uh, if, if he does it again, yeah, I think it, uh, I think it will. I think the Prime Minister's going to jump into the fray at, at, uh, at a time of his choosing anyways. And yesterday, don't forget, we had uh, uh, 25 Toronto MPs, um, 25 Liberal MPs in uh, Saskatoon wrote a letter to Ford, condemning Ford's move on the uh, notwithstanding clause. So uh, it, even if the Prime Minister is not jumping headfirst into this fire, the, uh, his, his MPs are, and of course he endorses what his MPs are, um, are doing. So... Um, yeah, I think we're already into it, and I think as we go forward in uh, 2019, you're going to hear the Prime Minister talking about it much more. This battleground Ontario, obviously, with what these guys are doing, and, and, and the piece, of course, uh, in the Star today talks about how both of these guys are playing a different game, but for the, the same reason, obviously, to solidify their base. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a different dynamic in politics these days. It's, it's really not trying to get as many votes, but trying to secure the votes that you know are going to be there. And it's, uh, uh, I don't know if that's because we have a three-party system in this country as opposed to usually what they have uh, the two-system down in the, in the states these days. But it makes for interesting politics, and, and you wonder, on the, on the national level right now, Tim, with the NDP seemingly flailing uh, and, and not quite knowing where they are, not quite even sure what their leader is going to be all about in the next couple of months, if this is really going to fall into a two-party race again by the time we go to the polls next year. Well, you have to wonder, um, you know, no, uh, no less of an authority than uh, Brian Mulroney this week talked about uh, what you just mentioning about um, playing to the base, and uh, Mulroney 
uh, who, no matter what you think of Brian Mulroney, knew how to get elected and certainly knew uh, his way around an election, uh, was talking about the uh, the fallacy of trying to uh, play to your base. If you try to uh, consolidate your base and play to the base, you're not um, you're, you're not you're not building your party. And uh, you know when I hear Doug Ford talk about uh, I'm elected. The judges are appointed, and I got 2.3 million voters. Uh, I'm hearing a guy um, who sounds very much like he's uh, playing to the base and not um, trying to move his party uh, into a position where you could possibly say you're governing for the province. Um, and you know, I, I, I I've been critical of Trudeau on a number of matters, but one is that I don't I, I haven't accused him of just playing to his base. He is trying to um, uh, govern uh, for for the electorate in general, and if Ford doesn't do that, um, you know you're uh, you handcuff yourself. Uh, you're you're like Trump in the U.S. The base loves you. Nothing, you're solid. Nothing moves. Your 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 um, favorables in your base doesn't go down, but you're not growing the party, and you're not um, you know you're not growing the party to the extent where you can say I'm governing for the people. And so far, it looks to me like uh, Ford is um, Doug Ford is bound and determined to govern for his base, not for the province, and uh, and really relishes a fight with the, uh, with the federal government on that matter. And uh, um, he's going to get it. But you know, are we at that point politically, though, Tim? Where you know we gravitate to people that thumb their nose at institutions. I mean, I, I that, that's one of the most troubling things. I mean, I know that a lot of people want to frame this debate as well. He was elected, and he's allowed to do what he wants. And, and cities, uh, you know, like city, Toronto City Council, are the the children of the province. We know that legislatively. Uh, we we get that. But at the same time, you're supposed to govern and make laws uh, at any level of government within the confines of, of the Charter of Rights and the Constitution. And, right. and basically, Ford is saying, to hell with that. I don't want to yeah. do that. And, and, and yeah. that's, that's what troubles me. Even Stephen Harper, I mean, you know, a lot of his get-tough-on-crime legislation got turfed up by the Supreme Court. Harper didn't do anything about that. He didn't try to invoke the notwithstanding clause. No, nobody at the federal level ever has. They, they, they respected what the notwithstanding clause was all about. Um, no, I mean, I mean, in my view, um, Ford is wrong. It's not a question of, I got this many million votes in Ontario. Hey, look at me, I got elected with, uh, what, 40.5%. Um, and uh, I'm not going to get into a thing about first past the post. Everybody, uh, you know, everybody rails against the um, the government they don't like because of first past the post. But um, for him to go off and say, I got 2.3 million votes, and that gives me a mandate to override the courts and uh, wreak havoc with the uh, Toronto City Council elections. No, uh, I'm sorry, Premier, it doesn't work that way. There is rule of law here, and uh, to use the notwithstanding clause for something like that, I thought was an, just a completely egregious abuse of the notwithstanding clause provision. And, um, you know, uh, if he turns, uh, if he decides that he's going to use it again every time he's stymied by the courts, um, then we are going to have a, a I believe, a, a, like a, a democratic uh, crisis in this province that will be exploited by federal parties. Well, what exacerbates this and, and frustrates me, and I know a lot of others, is, is the rush to the defense of, of Ford. And, and the, one of the arguments they're using, of course, is while an elected official trumps an appointed judge. Uh, and, and I would direct people, I know you've probably read this, uh, in this morning's Globe and Mail, there's a great op-ed mm-hmm. piece by Marie Hanning 
uh, who has obviously established herself a, a fabulous reputation in legal circles these days, uh, outlining exactly what that 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 relationship between uh, the, ju- the 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 judicial system, of course, and our legal system, uh, and the Constitution, and and uh, I, I wish, as, as she said there, I sh- she said to be happy to explain it to D- to Doug Ford. I don't think he's going to yeah. take her up on that. I got it. But it's right there in black and white. I think yeah. for all to see. Yeah. So the, the you know, it, it, it's a, in a fascinating way. I'm sure he didn't um, go out of his way to do this, but. Uh, Doug Ford's done a, a favor to a lot of us uh, uh, this week who are um, students of politics and um, uh, and, and uh, current affairs. Uh, he has uh, awakened a long dormant um, uh, interest in the Canadian Constitution, which I think is a good thing. He has uh, raised questions, legitimate questions, about... Um, the courts being used to thwart uh, legislative uh, majorities, and he has also uh, awakened a debate on the power of cities uh, across the country as under the Constitution as creatures of the provincial government. So, in a very strange, uh, unfortian way, um, give him credit uh, for one thing. He's got Canadians talking about uh, things that we were talking about a week ago. Um, I don't know how long it sustains itself. Uh, but um, to uh, refer to your question, if he does it again, uh, he's going to keep this debate front and center, and I think it's probably a good thing for Canadians to be talking about this. You know, ultimately, the, the biggest penalty that Doug Ford might uh, have to pay is for the, the fact that he's now got Canadians talking about the Constitution again, and boy, oh boy, don't we just love to have the Constitution there, go away, don't talk to me about the Constitution, of all things, and Doug Ford is actually, by his actions, uh, spurred a, a debate on uh, the Canadian Constitution. Who knew? <laughs> and, yeah, and, and given didn't. <laughs> given political journalists like us, a lot to talk about, too. Yeah. Uh, great piece in the Star today. Uh, always a pleasure, Tim. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for, uh, thanks for calling, Bill. I very appreciate it. Have a good weekend. You too. Take care. Tim Harper, of course, uh, freelance writer. Uh, check it out in the uh, Toronto Star today or online. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A lot going on this weekend here in our town, and uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, Deputy Chief of Police Dan Kinsella from Hamilton Police Services. Good to see you again. Uh, this is a, a hectic day, obviously. There's an ongoing investigation up in the Ancaster area and lots of other things happening. Uh, I appreciate you uh, taking some time to come in here today. Oh, my pleasure, Bill. Uh, always happy to be on, and nice to see you again. Uh, we should mention, by the way, because we've been talking about the uh, the investigation, uh, my understanding is that there'll be... Uh, uh, a, a, a presser later on today, around uh, 2 o'clock, I understand? Yes, uh, it'll be uh, at uh, 2 p.m. this afternoon. Uh, we'll give an update on uh, the most recent shooting that happened last night. Okay, and uh, we'll wait for that information at that time. I know that uh, there's still a lot of work and paperwork that has to be done and people notified, etc. So we'll set that aside for now. Now, this weekend, uh, we got Super Call coming up downtown. Uh, there's a number of football game, of course, tomorrow afternoon uh, at Tim Horton Field. And McMaster Homecoming, which uh, sends shivers down the spines of people who live anywhere near student housing. I, I guess you don't even have to be near the student housing. And we've had some problems in the past, haven't we? Yeah, we sure have. And, uh, you know, we're, we're cognizant of what occurred in the past, and we're trying to uh, prevent those incidents from occurring this weekend and certainly into the future. And uh, from the police perspective, we want everybody to enjoy their weekend and, and uh, celebrate, but we 
do want them to celebrate responsibly. And in addition to that, we want to let the people that are celebrating and out and about in the community, let them know what uh, the consequences may be uh, for their actions if they uh, breach any of the uh, provincial legislation or any of the bylaws or anything like that. So we've started a communication campaign, not only through McMaster to the students, uh, but also we have some stuff going on on Twitter uh, for uh, the partier, so to speak. Uh, They know what they can expect if they step over the line. And uh, we're really interested in making sure that everyone enjoys their weekend. So uh, the revelers, safe, uh, law-abiding, and the citizens in the West End, particularly of Hamilton, we want to make sure that they enjoy their weekend as well and ensure their quality of life through, uh, through, through to Sunday. So the, uh, the, the old line, oh, come on, officer, we're just having some fun. That's not going to cut it. That isn't this weekend. We're holding a zero tolerance uh, for any kind of infraction. So open liquor, uh, urination in public, uh, large parties, uh, noise, any of those things that occur, uh, we will be swift. We will be out early. We will be highly visible. And we will be enforcing uh, uh, all infractions uh, to make sure that we get the message across and also making sure that people stay safe. That's all part of the safety program. And uh, we've told them, we've educated them, we've given them fair warning uh, so they know what they can expect. Because uh, a lot of the time, I know, Dan, this is... This is open to interpretation. I mean, you know, somebody's idea of fun. Uh, but, you know, the, the stuff you just listed off here when you check those boxes, I mean, we're talking about, uh, you know, damage to property. We're talking about vandalism, uh, lewd behavior, things like that. I mean, th- th- those are, you know, those are serious offenses, really. Absolutely. And what, you know, what traditionally happens is is uh, things start out, you know, relatively calm and then, then it's a little bit contagious. Uh, you've got open liquor. Open liquor leads to urination because they have to go. And then uh, the noise starts up. Uh, but what you just mentioned, Bill, takes us to a whole new realm because it, it, it could be criminal, right? If they're doing damage and causing mischief, um, if there's some sort of lewd behavior that crosses into the criminal element, people can expect to be arrested and be held accountable. I, I know you study this, and, and I'm sure it's one of the courses they teach up at Elmer about this, about how when people get together, and oftentimes when liquor's involved, there's, there's a, a mob mentality that can develop. Not always, but it does. And we've seen that. I know you've seen that here in this community in the past. I, I still remember it was about five or six years ago in London, Ontario, at Fanshawe. There was that, that well, I mean, they were setting cars on fire. And they, I mean, these are students. These are not terrorists or anything like this. But it just seems that something seems to take over when there's a whole bunch of people doing something stupid. And, and it's, I guess that's, that's where the, they start crossing the line. Right. And, and it is, and it can be, uh, contagious. And, and, uh, to your point, they are just students. They're, they're generally, they're all good kids. Uh, they're trying to get out there and have a good time. Uh, but there's an element, uh, that isn't there for a good time. They're in there for the mischief and those kind of things. So what you have is a group of kids that may get caught up in it. And, uh, because they see the behavior, uh, they may think it's permissible and it's not. Um, it, it's not okay to, to, uh, uh, commit criminal offenses. It's not okay to commit the breaches of the, uh, uh, provincial offenses, whether it be open liquor, intoxicated in a public place, whatever it may be. Uh, that kind of stuff is not okay. We've been communicating the message. And and uh, like I said, uh, for those that choose to cross that line, they will be held accountable. I, I reference this and, and characterize this as West End. And, and obviously that's the university campus and there's a lot of student housing there. But uh, this can spread to other areas too. Well, it certainly can because, uh, you know, uh, we've been working hard uh, with our partners, McMaster, uh, City Bylaw, and, um, you know, they have the football game at McMaster in the afternoon. Uh, but when, you know, those events are done, uh, people can go to other areas. They could go into Supercrawl. They could go into Hess Village. Uh, they could go to the Tiger Cat game tomorrow. So these are all the things that, you know, we kind of have to uh, be cognizant of and pay attention to, and we are. And we're making sure that we monitor the crowd 
scouts to see where they're going and what they're doing. Always with the intention of, don't do this. We want you to be safe. Here's the rules, those kind of things. And uh, we truly do just want everyone to have a great weekend. When you've got a weekend like this with all these happen- things happening in, in such a short period of time, with, as you mentioned, Super Call and a bunch of other things going on, uh, what, what kind of pressure does that put on police services in, in this community? Well, certainly from a resource perspective, it puts uh, great pressure on us. We have to make sure that we properly deploy, properly put the uh, resources into place. Um, we don't have, uh, you know, an abundance. Like, it's not like we have a lot of people standing around doing nothing. So we have to kind of prioritize. We have to put people into the right uh, position. But even beyond that, we have to have the ability to respond and to be flexible in our response. So if we need to uh, move resources from where one area to the other, we have to be prepared to do that. Uh, we don't do it in the moment. We generally prepare uh, in advance. What if, then, what are we going to do? So we have these kind of plans and contingencies in place, and uh, we're prepared for the weekend, and we will respond accordingly. Is, is there a, a number that you have in mind, uh, you know, officers at a certain location? Because obviously you have to have a presence. So we'll talk about downtown, about the super crawl. Uh, I think last year they, t- they estimated about well, 200,000 people attended that. D- does that equate to you, X number of officers that need to be around there? Well, on some level it does. We have uh, main things that we have to look after. We have to look after traffic concerns. We have to have a presence of officers uh, in and around um, uh, beer gardens and those kind of things just to make sure that people know that the police are in the area. And then we also have to have officers who are uh, patrolling in those events. So Supercrawl, for example, 200,000 last year. I think they're predicting much more. They've added a day. They've expanded the footprint of yeah. it. So so those are all things that we have to pay attention to and deploy appropriately. The other issue we have is uh, operational continuity out on the street. Uh, we've got to respond to the calls for service that keep coming, and we have to make sure that uh, we have those officers that are doing that while they're aware of what's going on at Supercrawl, McMaster, and all the other areas. So we're all prepared uh, to respond on a priority basis depending on what comes our way. So, so there's a, obviously a coordination. I mean, this is not like you guys looked at the calendar and said, "Hey, you know what's going on this weekend?" I mean, you've you've been working on this for some time, I would think. Absolutely, and 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 uh, quite honestly, we started planning for homecoming right after last year's homecoming, and um, you know, uh, with any of these things, we do a debrief. We looked at what we did. How are we going to change? What should we change to do uh, something different? How are we going to respond? We have made some changes into a response for this year, and um, we're we're regularly planning for that. It's the same with Taikaki. Games, it's the same with Supercrawl. As soon as we finished up with Supercrawl last year, and I've been, uh, as the divisional commander in Division One, had a lot of experience working with Tim Potasik, and, yeah. and we have great cooperation, and we're all like-minded. Safety, uh, safety, making sure everybody has a good time. So we're planning pretty much all year round, working with the city. The city's heavily involved, and obviously out at McMaster, uh, we're working with our partners there all the time. What about the, 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 the duties of the officers themselves? I, I, I remember last year after the homecoming, and you're right, there were some incidents, and we, we talked about this on the program at that time, and we heard from some of the residents said, you know, we saw these guys doing this and this and this, and the cops did nothing. I, I know you hear that all the time. Uh, what can they can and cannot do, an officer who may be on site and seeing some sort of stuff like this? I mean, there are some people that are going to say, oh, just arrest this guy, or, or whatever they're going to uh, Obviously, there has to be some discussion and some training about the officers on site and what they can and cannot do or should or should not do. Right. And and we do that and, and we have an operational plan for all the events that are going on this weekend. Part of that operational plan is a mission. What do we want to accomplish? How are we going to get it done? And then uh, how are we going to execute that particular plan and where people are going to be? But we also have to be cognizant of officer safety. So we've got the community safety piece. We've got the officer safety piece. Obviously, we will act 
depending on the gravity of the situation. So we have something serious happen. Officers are going to act, uh, react, whatever the case may be, based on their training, based on their use of force options available, based on the number of officers. But we also have to be uh, evaluative on what's happening and and what is the offense. So, for example, you may have someone uh, within a crowd that's um, uh, consuming uh, marijuana or cannabis, say, and somebody uh, might say they're committing a criminal offense, and they are, but they could be uh, in the middle of a crowd of 200 people and, and and then we have to evaluate what is the uh, danger what is the response do we need to go and arrest that person right now or are there other options conversely an assault that's happening in a crowd we would we would react much more uh, uh, deliberately so there's a bit of an assessment that goes on keeping in mind what is the absolute threat that's occurring what's the threat to the officer what's the overall threat to the community and the officers have a lot of training in in, in uh, the ability to respond appropriately and they do all the time communication's got to be big on this though I would think uh, uh, obviously with these incidents and these festivals and, and events where there's going to be a lot of people, but uh, there can be fluid situations too. I mean, we, you and I remember talking about the, the Lock Street incident from a while back, and that actually started in another part of downtown and, and, and spread to that. And, and, but the communication was ongoing at that time. Not with st- I, know, I know some people were saying, well, the cops were never around. Well, you, you were, and you were marshaling in the proper area. Right. And, and communication is huge. Not only communication between the officers on the ground, the officers that are, are uh, commanding the particular incident. And, and um, I, this weekend, I will be heavily involved in the communication uh, with the command officer that will be looking after homecoming, uh, super crawl, and all those kind of things. Plus, we have a duty officer that's out, uh, out and about on the street looking after the calls for service. So that communication is always flowing. Uh, it, bo- it goes both up and down. I regularly update the chief. So those things are already happening. But we are also in regular communication with these groups. So, uh, for example, if someone is, is uh, forming up for a demonstration and they're preparing, we meet with the leaders of those groups. We have conversation with them in advance. What are you guys planning to do? We're here to help you. We're here to make it safe. We're here to make sure that uh, nothing goes awry. Um, we just need to know what your intentions are. And more times than not, they will uh, communicate with us and say, listen, we're coming here. We're, we're demonstrating against this particular issue. We've got five speakers. Here's the time it's going to be happening. We'll ask a question like, are you planning to go mobile? Are you planning to march to another site or anything like that? And uh, generally speaking, if they are, they'll tell us. If they're not, uh, they'll tell us. So we can make the appropriate plans. We always have contingencies in the back, uh, but uh, to the Lock Street incident, started somewhere else, they mobilized, they moved to Lock Street. So we have to plan for that. We have the uh, resources in advance. We do our very best. They don't always tell us. Sometimes there's, you know, hidden agendas with different groups. And then, of course, just finishing up on the communication point, we rely on the community to report. If they see something, say something. And, and the community knows. Uh, like this weekend in, in Westdale, if they see crowds of kids forming up, they've got beers in their hand, they've got red solo cups, um, and we don't happen to be there at that particular moment, we need a call. We need a call on the admin line. And we'll get out there and we'll respond because we're going to be in the area, so we're going to be close. So that communication works always. And I can't tell you enough that we need the community to help us. They're the eyes and ears, and, and they get to us, and we can get out there and we can try to solve problems. We, we talked a lot, a lot here about crowd control and, and, and the sorts of things that are going on. Uh, right at the beginning, you touched on something, though, that uh, we, I, we tend to overlook until after the fact. 
uh, is traffic control. I mean, this city is going to be kind of crazy this weekend with obviously road closures in some areas and masses of people <coughs> going on, and that falls within your purview. I mean, you're, you're going to have to control it, whether the, the, the roads are going to be closed, alternate routes and things of this nature, and, and again, officers need to be involved there. Absolutely, and, and, and that's a big part of it. That's kind of where it starts, really. Yeah. And if I uh, uh, use, I can use both examples, Supercrawl and for homecoming. Um, when the students go out and they're drinking and, and uh, or even if they're just forming up and, and, and standing around and they begin to take over the street, that immediately causes a concern because we need people to be able to access that street. We need people to get to their homes. We need emergency services vehicles, uh, paramedics, fire, whoever that may be. We need to keep the streets clear. So that's the other part of the messaging. And when those vehicles are coming down and, and uh, people are, are obstructing the roadway, that's a real problem for us. So we got to be on top of it. Even in Supercall, there's, even though the streets are blocked off uh, from King down to Strawn, um, there's a lot of intersections that are still open as you go along York Boulevard and, and, and things like that. So we have to be uh, cognizant of the traffic. The, the city still needs to flow. The city, uh, people in the city still need to get to where they are. So we're out there, we're cognizant of it, and, and uh, we're prepared. Uh, you guys are like the umpires in a baseball game, right? If, if everything goes well, nobody sees you. That's right. <laughs> nobody pays attention. And and I'm hoping it's that way. I mean, yes. there's there's the potential here for all sorts of wonderful things to happen this weekend uh, and a lot of people to enjoy themselves. But uh, I guess the message here that uh, that you want to impart is that, look, at, uh, just be reasonable about this and be smart and you know, don't do anything stupid because – Obviously, there's going to be ramifications. Right. And and really, we want everyone to have a great weekend, whether you're the uh, students participating in homecoming, the people going to the Ticat game, uh, people attending Supercrawl, because all of these events are great for the city of Hamilton. They're fantastic. And, and our message is, and to your point, we would rather not be seen. We would rather have there be no incidents, whether it be at Hess Village or anywhere. We don't want anything to happen. Uh, if it does, we'll respond. Um, that's why we get out in front. We do the messaging. We tell people what they can expect. And we're hoping everyone... Uh, does the right thing and and uh, enjoys their weekend and it should be beautiful weather so I'm hoping and uh, I expect that uh, it will be a great weekend for the city of Hamilton. Deputy Chief Dan Kinsella thanks for coming in and good luck this weekend. My pleasure thanks Bill. The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.